This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome back to Almost Heretical. It feels really good to say that. We've, we took uh, August off and we are back now in September. We had, um, I had a little bit of a medical flare up. I have a condition called ulcerative colitis. It's kind of like Crohn's if you've heard of that. Anyways, it flares up every so often and um, it hasn't in a few years, which has been awesome, but it, it did right now, I believe that's what's going on. And so um, to anyone who suffers from that or anything like that, I am so sorry because it is not fun at all. And uh, I'm still sort of in the middle of that, but things are hopefully in the right direction as far as doctors and medicines. And hopefully we're, we're getting somewhere eventually. I'm trying to speak that into existence because it's still kind of uh, a little bit depressing right now. But anyways, that's where I am. Um, and that's why we were off for a bit there, but we are back. Yeah. Glad Nate's doing a little bit better. Um, and then sorry. And also we'll just hopefully next time, uh, be able to give some warning, <laughs> uh, if we're going to take some time off, we reserve the right indefinitely to take time away from this podcast. Uh, but this kind of hit Nate hard and we didn't see it coming. So we just basically, uh, went MIA for a little while. So hopefully if that's going to happen again, if we're going to take a few weeks off, we'll let you guys know. Okay. So we thought we would start things up again with a listener question. And it's not just a listener. It's a very special listener. It's Sarah, Sarah, the transcriber. She has transcribed, I think most of our episodes now, which is super awesome. You can go to almostheretical.com and and find just if you if you click on any episode you'll see um as you scroll down the text literally every single word that we say is transcribed onto the show by sarah so she transcribes all our shows and she had a question and uh should i just read that uh we can play it oh that's right she recorded it okay yeah yeah yeah. so here it is hi tim and nate this is sarah from seattle i was wondering you mentioned a few times uh, that the text was trying to get us to see implications in a story or the text is pushing us to become good moral agents. Who do you mean when you say the Bible wants that? Do you mean the writers or compilers? Do you mean God? And then assuming you mean any of the individuals involved in creating the manuscripts, how could they intend for readers to adapt any ethical philosophies that are anachronistic for the time that they were writing? Even if the compilers of the Hebrew Bible were more moral than the writers of the uglier, more problematic texts, they wouldn't have known and couldn't have intended a 21st century ethic or even a 1st century ethic informed by Jesus' teachings, right? Thanks. Thanks, Sarah. And uh, yeah, we do say that on the show a lot, like the Bible is trying to get us to see this or that the text is trying to say or something like that. And I guess that kind of leads us to this general question that we wanted to sit on for this episode, which is, is the Bible really sufficient and clear for guiding our ethical decisions and for morality? Um, I, I kind of, I kind of see like, that's the bigger question here. Um, and it's kind of some of the things that Sarah's getting at, it feels like, but yeah, for, for now let's split Sarah's two questions, right? Uh, the first question is, you know, can the Bible per se actually 
say anything or if I say that the Bible told me so who or what so what, what yeah what are you saying when when you say that let's just get let's just jump in right so that first question. when you say the Bible like right so first let me just say some of this is just from us being sloppy with language um, and using a, a lazy language where the subject of the sentence is just the Bible uh, so sorry and then another part of this I think is just, the complexity that we can't <laughs> complexify or complicate every single time uh, we talk about this stuff. So remember in that the reason I bring up the mosaic image often, uh, the mosaic metaphor uh, for how the Bible works, what these multiple texts and multiple layers of each text are doing together is it's it's one metaphor that highlights the different layers of agency of different parts of the text or different people who contributed the text. So I think part of where uh, Sarah's referencing these questions, some of the last couple episodes we did before we disappeared, um, one of the examples we used was some of these horrible texts in the Old Testament or texts in which we find evidence of a pretty horrible treatment of women in the Old Testament, right? So texts that seem to be assuming the subjugation of women and even potentially rationalizing or justifying uh, rape. And we compared that to like a little piece of tile in which there's an image of Adolf Hitler, right? Yep. And then we asked the question, if that tile shows up in a in a collage or a mosaic with a thousand other tiles and the overall picture is this beautiful landscape. What is the role? What is the significance? What is the meaning? <laughs> what is that Hitler piece, that individual piece? Uh, how do we, how do we treat that? How do we handle that? What is that? And then part of the way we answer that is to say that the, the overarching message, if you're going to say that the mosaic, that landscape picture, that's what we're saying is the Bible as a whole. If that has a message that it's trying to get across, whatever that message is, is the overarching picture that the... So you're saying that at a later date, someone came around and we've said this before, but I'm just clarifying and saying it in a, a sentence or two. Someone at a later date took a bunch of texts that existed, kind of cut them up, chopped them up, added a little bit, added things to tie stuff together and put it all together in this thing that we know um, as the Hebrew Bible. And that is what you're saying. When you when you kind of use the short the shorthand or the term like the Bible is saying, you're you are referring to the editor, redactor, mosaic creator. Right. But what's confusing, I think, I think I think you are a bit, but what's confusing about that is that that kind of starts to sound like the um, the biblical guide to marriage and the, the biblical womanhood I- ideas, right? Like, I think that's why someone could hear it and go like, oh, but you're just saying the same thing. The Bible is saying this, and they're saying the Bible is saying that. It kind of sounds like just your own ideas and their own ideas and but you're using the same like the bible is saying right yeah i get you i think that that shorthand language that's why i am apologizing it is lazy so there are times where i think 
there is an overarching point that the Bible as a whole is is in consensus on. Give me one. Uh, say that there's going to be some sort of priestly, royal, king figure who will come from the nation of Israel that will help heal the world. I think there's a consensus in in there amongst the various texts. In the act, so okay, so you're saying in the actual text that you think there's a consensus, not just with the whoever redacted and edited the thing, but just actually in the text, you think that is there? Uh, <laughs> no, actually, and this this is interesting. Um, may, maybe <laughs> with that example, so like me- messianism, right? The idea um, that there is this. Uh, this hope being put forth in a single individual figure to be a messiah figure, right? So one fast, so if we just use that as a, as a case study for a little bit to have this bigger conversation, um, I think it's actually a, a fascinating case study because if you listen to Jewish scholars or even just your everyday pastor, a Christian pastor in a pulpit, there's, there's somewhat of a, of a shared consensus that the Old Testament is pointing forward to a Messiah, right? The right. the disagreement historically and uh, traditionally still today between Christians and Jews is whether Jesus was was that Messiah or whether we're still waiting for Messiah. I think to go a step farther, like the evangelical church would say, and I've heard this before, that that was almost the point of the Old Testament was to show that we couldn't do things on our own and we need a Messiah. So kind of diminishes it almost to like that was the the goal of this whole time period slash text textual history was to show us that like a messiah is coming well you're right and for this conversation separate the view of a messiah as it as the solution to we're all awful and we can't do anything for our own so we need someone who's not awful that's not what I mean. <laughs> so let's just Messiah broadly as an individual hero figure who will do for Israel what Israel was meant to do. And what Israel was meant to do was to do for the world what the world could not do. And therefore, all of the sort of hopes and expectations get placed on this king, priestly, prophetic figure. So Aragorn. Aragorn slash Gandalf slash Frodo. It's like all of them in a package. But right. Okay. Anyway, so hold off, hold off on all that. But just like the general idea that there was a person right? Uh, this anointed one, this king, uh, a, a son of David who was to come. Uh, what's fascinating is that you have this broad consensus. The New Testament authors certainly were reading the Hebrew Bible that way, right? Uh, and yet, there's actually very little description of a Messiah. Even the word anointed, Mashiach, is used very seldomly as a noun referring to an individual person in texts throughout the Old Testament. And one way of seeing how uh, the messianic profile or this theme of like an individual person is developed, I think is, is part in places, say like the book of Daniel, I think was was written with an eye towards there being this future individual person, like whoever was writing the book of Daniel believed there was going to be this Messiah, was, you know, had a messianic theology and then was writing from that. In other words, that messianism is in the book of Daniel. If you just read the book of Daniel by itself, you could you could get some of that. 
In other places, say the book of Leviticus or the Torah as a whole, the Pentateuch, the first five books as a whole, uh, or the book of Judges or some others, you wouldn't necessarily read those books on their own and come to the conclusion that anything like, that there even was going to be a Messiah, let alone that that was the main point, right? That that was the main idea being being conveyed, the, the main message when you look at the the mural, the mosaic, that that's the main thing you're supposed to take away. You wouldn't see that. But like one uh, example I've used, and we just haven't gotten into the weeds on it, so again, I'll ask you all to trust me, is the book of Psalms. Most of us do not read the book of Psalms and see anything like uh, a, a presentation of how we are meant to hope for an individual who embody certain themes of the Hebrew Bible and that that's the main takeaway. Um, we, we read them at face value as songs or Psalms, and then we sort of look at whatever is inherent in each one. So people might look at Psalm 22 individually and be like, oh, that sort of sounds like Jesus. Yeah. You know, there's the suffering person. So maybe this Psalm is like somehow this like prophetic future foreshadowing but then we ignore Psalms 1 through 21, <laughs> all the Psalms after, right? We don't know how to make sense of it. It's just like we find Jesus-y sounding bits and pieces. But actually, there's a case to be made that the 150 Psalms, the way they've been arranged, what you're supposed to notice is the way themes are being compiled next to each other, uh, the way there's this sort of crescendo uh, of hope to suffering, to a sort of resurrection, redemption, vindication uh, that actually follows Israel's history, but then has a sort of individual motif to it, that there's a way of actually reading the entire book of Psalms that's trying to get us to come to a sort of individual messianic hope. Now, you can buy that argument, right? You can think that you see that there or think that that's meant to be there or not. Uh, I'm not necessarily making the case for that. But that's a way of saying that none of those individual psalms were written in order to convey that message. But what a compiler did was took a whole bunch of pieces of tile and arranged them in a way that was able to present that message. So you could make a case with the book of Psalms that none of the original writers had any sort of messianic theology, but that that whoever compiled the book of Psalms, which may or may not be the same person that compiled the Hebrew Bible as a whole, did have a messianic theology and was trying to communicate that by the way that he arranged those 150 Psalms. So it's possible that both things are happening, right? It's possible that the the exact... Uh, main point or the main messaging or meaning of an individual tile is also the same thing that you're seeing when you look at the overall whole. The Adolf Hitler was example was a way of communicating. It could also be the exact opposite. You could have a, a picture that has nothing to do or is the antithesis of the overall image um, but still works to get you to the overall image by the role it plays in, in filling out this bigger picture. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So if we, if we zoom back to just Sarah's main question, there's a way in which we could say, okay, the Bible is, 
is messianic. And what we would be saying is that the, the end result of the mosaic and therefore the, the human being or group of human beings who made that mosaic were messianic. Therefore, the Bible is trying to get us to see that, right? But where that even falls apart is this whole mosaic thing. I'm only talking about the Old Testament, right? There was no compiler mosaic maker for the New Testament. The New Testament is simply a collection of texts written by different people, different kinds of texts that have not been broken apart, stitched together. You know, I use the the metaphor of like a little touch up paint in places, words added, phrases. Don't you wish added. someone had? <laughs> <laughs> At times, more often, I just wish people would acknowledge that that's what this is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that metaphor doesn't work at all, right? I can't say that if I'm talking about, you know, how Paul thought about leadership in the church, I can't say that whatever Paul thought is what the Bible says. And that happens all the time. That's probably, I think of anything, Paul is the one that's used the most, right? To say, this is what, this is the biblical guide to marriage. And where are they going? They're going to Paul and maybe to like make it a little bit stronger, they take Jesus out of context in one spot or something like that. Right. The biblical guide to womanhood or whatever. Like it's, it's Paul. <laughs> it's, you could retitle it Paul's thoughts on, on gender. And it's not, as you can go back and listen to in the gender series, it's probably not even Paul's thoughts on gender. Anyway, sorry. Wow. So Paul. Yeah. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, It works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So that's different. So I think most of the time, if it's like, yeah, the biblical counsel for manhood and womanhood, like the biblical whatever, here's what the Bible says. I think it's traditionally coming from a view of inspiration, typically tied with a view of inerrancy in which God is the author. People were, the the writers were sort of just these, these vessels that channeled God's uh, pure, unbridled thoughts. And therefore, what they're really saying is whatever the Bible says is God. Well, that's what God is saying. You could interchange God and the Bible, right, as the subject of the sentence. When I've used it, I actually, in the back of my head, again, I still don't think this is the best way of talking, so I'll, I'll try to be more careful. But in the back of my head, when I'm talking about the Hebrew Bible, and I say the Bible says, I mean that final compiler. And, and I'm not even making the case that, like, there was no inspiration or God wasn't involved in anything. I'm just saying that that human being, whatever was going through his brain, who had his hands on this thing last, that's the person who has the final agency uh, to, to determine what this thing is, is messaging. But then sometimes what I'm saying is uh, where it seems that 
the Old Testament mosaic and all of the New Testament texts, right? The, the gospels, letters that we have, the crazy revelation letter. If they all are in agreement on something, right? Uh, you know, say that God is good. And actually that's even a debatable idea of whether the Hebrew Bible is consistent there. But say there's one point where I thought all of it together was was sharing a a consistent message, then that's often another time where I would say the Bible is saying something. Really what I should be saying is the the main redactor of the Hebrew Bible and Paul and Luke and John, some whoever wrote Hebrews, no one will ever know. Like all of those people are in agreement and they share this certain idea or they're all trying to get us to do something. Uh, so I think, Sarah, uh, this question was, was tied to uh, originally the Choose Your Own Adventure episode we did where I was pointing out that in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, specifically, there are these crossroads being being set out before us. And I think the the person or people who put those crossroads there is exactly the person who redacted and compiled and, and made this mosaic out of these disparate texts. And I think that person was a genius, an absolute genius in a in a litany of ways. And one of the the most amazing points of ingenuity uh, that I see in this composite of texts is that ability to put us at a crossroads that is actually trying to bring us through an experience that the experience of reading the text itself will transform and change us and lead us to maturity and actually bring about in us the kind of wisdom that the texts were, were writing about, right? So the texts become... Uh, three-dimensional performative uh, kind of like a, a theater uh, a play is performative but it's performative on the individual or communal who is the the reader um, and that so that mosaic maker uh, is is essentially who I'm referring to in that the Bible sentence Okay, the second part of Sarah's question I want to get to now, which is where she's kind of asking, like, uh, how could the Bible be trying to get us to the Bible, as you've just defined it now, the first part? How could that be trying to get us, let's just say the biblical writers, how could they be trying to get us to think uh, to think in, um, in such a way that maybe the culture or the time they're living in isn't there yet, right? Let's just say as, the, as far as maybe the... Um, the subjugation of women or things that were happening in the culture at the time, sexual ethics, LGBTQ um, topics, like how could they have been trying to have us see things uh, when they weren't even there yet? And I guess I kind of have that question as well. Like is when we talk about that Hitler piece, I guess being included in the, the, the like kind of the gross bits that you see, like if there's if those were left in there so that we were supposed to see those and go like oh that's terrible I know we've talked about this before but I have a hard time with that because I don't think that's why it was left in you know and we've we've talked about that you've you've made that case before like you don't think that's why it was left in 
So I'm guess I'm asking sort of Sarah's question as well, or maybe adding on to it. Like how how could they be trying to get us to believe something that they're that the culture at the time didn't believe? And if that's not what they're doing, then do we just have to say that those were just left in there because because they're saying that they're not that bad, or they're saying that's just what was going on at the time, and they're not giving us a a judgment call on those kind of <laughs> you know negative pictures that we see. Yeah, yeah. So this is just another point where uh, I should have been clearer and we can be clearer with our, our language. Um, and this this is absolutely, in, in my view, the heart of the divide between progressive and conservative Christians. Um, and, and honestly, I would say progressive and conservative religious people. Uh, this actually spans, I think, far outside of, of Christianity. Um it's it's the the question of whether the texts that are that our religion is founded upon have the ultimate source of ethical revelation and therefore we need to to stop the the momentum forward that the outside world uh, <laughs> is is moving toward right this forward progress where ethics and morality are changing and being revised and being updated we need to push back on that it's literally what conserving means right exactly like holding on keeping ourselves in the past like conserving it's you're talking about drawing lines you're talking about putting walls up to to make sure things don't get out of control and you stay in this past state right so the idea is that that some past wonderful thing has happened right god has has shown up to a to an individual god dropped tablets on a mountain in the ancient eastern world like some great thing existed in the past and we have access to it typically via a sacred text for christians that's the bible and therefore we need to preserve it go back to it conserve the all of what we've had from it and treat the Bible as an anchor, right? For, for progressive Jews, progressive Christians, progressive Muslims, progressive Hindus, progressive anything, uh, the, the ethical sensibility is that the sacred texts or prophetic figures, our history, our traditions, they, uh, they could be special they could have been they could have absolutely been that glorious moment where where God showed up on a mountain and spoke to a person um, and that the trajectory that those texts and the history of our, our faith communities uh, are wanting us to be on is a trajectory forward into uh, into history forward through history where we we are progressing evolving revising beyond the ethical world of those texts and so i i think most people arrive at their their decision to be conservative or progressive mostly by experience and sensibility in the world like experience personality we talked with christina cleveland about some people just absolutely have very low by nature have a very low uh, capacity for uncertainty right right 
or a high need for certainty. Mm -hmm. And others uh, are much more comfortable with the gray, with the unknown, with change. So I, I think largely most people come to these decisions of how to treat the Bible from outside the Bible. Uh, and then we all fight about it and, <laughs> and argue over, you know, whether the Bible supports our side or not. Uh, my point was that actually you can see significant evidence uh, from within the Hebrew Bible that, again, what the compiler was trying to do was to put put this set of texts in front of us, to put this mosaic in front of us in order to help us become more wise human beings in order to progress beyond those texts and the world of those texts forward into the future. So it would be utterly anachronistic to suppose that this, uh, this mosaic maker was like wanting us to see the equality of gay people and the equality of trans people and the end of racism and the end, the end of patriarchy. That's not what I'm saying. I think I still would have had a boatload of issues with the mosaic makers sense of morality, right? Coming from my 21st century, uh, worldview. Um, but I think part of the evidence I was laying out is that mosaic maker was already disagreeing and progressing with the view of those taken in some of the texts that he was using, right? So one example I've used is the the position of whether Jewish men should be divorcing and abandoning their non-Jewish wives, right? It's this issue of religious purity meets ethnic nationalism and uh, and racism, essentially. And he was potentially, I think there's a good case to read uh, the Genesis 2 line that we've all used as this case for heterosexual normativity, right? That therefore a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, that there's actually a good case to be made that the point of that sentence is to disagree with passages in Deuteronomy or in Ezra and Nehemiah uh, that are suggesting that the ethical thing to do uh, was to for a Jewish purity, right? That, that, uh, that mixed-race marriages... <laughs> Uh, keeping them, right, was the wrong thing to do. And what uh, Jews returning from exile should do would be to leave their wives. So that's that's a an eth ethical concern in the time of the compiling of this text that is different from our ethical concerns. I do not think there was a single person in the ancient world advocating for LGBTQ equality, right? <laughs> but there have been thousands and thousands and millions of them in our world for the last several decades. That is one of our fundamental concerns, right? Which the church is splitting over and society is splitting over. There are litany of these things. I think the point was um, many of us in conservative Christianity come from an anthropology, a view of people, which is that not only is the Bible the the ultimate source of of knowledge, the ultimate source of wisdom, we'll never get better than it, right? So we have to keep going backward to this more than 2,000-year-old text. Mm -hmm. But also, that is paired with this super low view of of <laughs> our innate worth and our innate ability to to be wise, mature, 
rulers here in this world, right? The total depravity, original sin. Yeah, it seems like a dangerous combination, right? Like to say like we don't have the moral capabilities to to move forward and to kind of navigate our way on issues and topics and whatever in the world. But then also that there's this special religious text, which is what we're saying it is in in evangelical world that that gives us our marching orders and shows us everything we need for life, um, which is what, what we say it has, right? Um, and uh, you kind of combine those together. That's a pretty. That's pretty dangerous. Yeah, uh, it is. And but the thing is, people will read the Bible and come away with uh, that. That's what the Bible is wanting us to do. You know. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is like if 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 we saw any other religious group doing that when we see other religious groups doing that uh as evangelicals they will say you know look at this group this is this is crazy this is insane they are you know but basically they'll, they'll think it's like insane that someone would do it. and then i'm like well you're doing that exact same thing you know like yeah it's easy to see when someone else is doing that um you know you you never think you're part of the cult right you think you're part of the the truth and the way um and then everyone else is following a lot. But, but when you notice you're saying the same types of things, you know, you're saying, and I thought this earlier when you were talking, like you're saying, cause I used to picture the divine inspiration. I mean, it was almost like I picture some guy's eyes rolling up into his head and his arm moving kind of robotically uh, in a very ghost-like way as God, you know, spoke through his pen. Um, and I think, I don't know. I feel like that's, I was right. Hey, I was right on with the the one less rib thing that we did. So I have a feeling like <laughs> other people might have had this same picture in their head when with the, the eyes rolling back, kind of they turn they turn all like glowy and everything, and then like their arm just starts moving and they're writing with God. They're they're in, they're inconsequential in the in the whole process, and uh, and I think you know we're saying that's how the Bible came to be for the most part, and when we see that happening in, let's say, the Book of Mormon, that's, you know, oh, wow, that's crazy. A clear sign of heresy, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, but aren't you kind of saying that that's sort of what happened with your religious text too? Totally getting off here, but like, yeah, I, it's just crazy. when You're able to see those things so clearly with with another group, but not with your own group, I think. Yeah, it is a, it is a tangent, but I, I do think it's a significant irony that uh, in conservative Christianity, I think, at least in, in my experience, the, the more conservative the view of inspiration um, the and the lower the anthropology, the lower the view of humans and therefore the humans that wrote these texts and compiled them, um, the more the view becomes this sort of divine tablets dropped from heaven, the, the more basically their Christian view of inspiration becomes this, the same as the view of inspiration for Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and the way that Muhammad supposedly received the Quran. So all these these other sacred texts that those same conservative Christians will try to put their, you know, the Bible as above these other ways of getting sacred texts. The irony is that the more they hold on to this sort of, you know, Golden Tablets view of inspiration, the more it becomes exactly functioning, 
functioning practically in, in people's brains, the, pretty much the equivalent uh, of the others, rather than, that's why I think treating these things as works of human genius is an important uh, sort of push back in the other direction to that. But again, that's a tangent. So to get back, to clarify uh, our case, my case is that uh, the the author of the Hebrew Bible, and, and then here I'd come in and say, and every author of every text we have in the New Testament is in agreement uh, that these authors collectively do not believe that what we need to do is treat these texts as anchors that stop us from moving forward through the world and, and stop us from changing our views. The very opposite, these texts are trying to uh, get us to move forward. And, uh, and we can figure out how much we're going to get into this, but the, the main view, I think, of the Hebrew Bible compiler is, is shared and uh, even elaborated on in all the authors of the New Testament. Uh, which is the role of the Spirit to subjectively aid the people of God and through them the entire world to move forward into wisdom that they haven't previously had. Uh, so one little interesting bit, and maybe we'll use this as our transition, when we're talking about like ways that this compiler disagreed with the very text that he was still using, right, to, to get across his message. Uh, there's a theme, you may have heard it, this drawn out in other podcasts, where the, the tree of life in the garden is a, is a representation of divine wisdom. And the, the main idea is that these young kids, Adam and Eve, these immature adults were supposed to grow in maturity to seek and find wisdom uh, it, represented in this tree. And that the main theme being presented on in these first chapters of humanity's plight is a lack of wisdom and their need to find it and God's desire to help humanity find wisdom. Uh, and But then what you see is is the law, the Torah, the instructions, the, the actual laws given at Sinai, uh, the legal codes, those get to be equated with this tree of life. And so there's kind of this, this progression. It's like this broad picture wisdom as a whole that will heal the world, right? Uh, that gets whittled down to like, well, God gave us all these rules and regulations. This is ultimate wisdom. This is it. And so you have this sort of hold on to those laws, right? These are the best we'll ever get. Uh, maintain these laws idea contained within the the Pentateuch and other texts within the Hebrew Bible. But then you have little glimpses that are saying, actually, no, we're supposed to move beyond that law. And really it's going to be God enabling every single human individual to have the moral capacity to, to discern good and evil on their own, not by some laws written on tablets. That's where you get this metaphor, but on the tablets of the human heart. Mm. Um, that's specifically saying it's going to be subjective, right? Can it get any more subjective than that? <laughs> I've always metaphor? heard that, but like that was written, it was written on your heart. It was the Bible written on your heart. Yeah, that's right. It was having the truth written on your heart. That's just a, a great irony, right? Because like what that would actually mean is that you don't need God or the Spirit of God or Jesus. 
you just need a preservation of, of those laws, right? A preservation of those codes, mm -hmm. in which case we have everything we need because we have managed to preserve the texts that have at least some of those codes. In, in reality, especially this is the way Jesus and the New Testament authors collectively were all reading this, is it was this radical, scandalous move beyond those codes to a, a world where now people had access to the Spirit. And together with access to the spirit, they could find wisdom and apply that in the world. And so, so my case here is that the, that that isn't something Jesus was making up. Um, you can make a case. We'll probably do a series on this. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. You can make uh, an argument that there is not a single thing that Jesus ever said or taught that was not simply a matter of how a form of interpretation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, you can make a case that he did not make up a single idea for himself that we have access to uh, in the four Gospels or in the epistles. So all he was doing, possibly, uh, was was reading the Hebrew Bible the way he thought it was intended to be reading or intended to be read, intended by that compiler that we've been referring to. And and the same goes for the, the New Testament authors. And it was a it was a huge departure from the way that the Jewish establishment was reading the, the law codes and the role of the codes in, uh, in this greater theme of humans finding wisdom. Um, so this is, again, this is a tangent. I guess we're just going to take some tangents today. But you know the, the famous line of, in the Gospels, wherever two or more gathered in my name, I'll be there with you, right? Yes. That is famously, pretty much every biblical scholar uh, knows. That verse was like the, the wonderful verse for that small group meeting where no one showed up. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that was the like, pick me up line. That's, you had to like, it's that. okay if there's just a couple of us. Yeah. You had to leave with that to get the, you know, the momentum back when it's only three people, you know, or God forbid two people, um, you know, like that was your, that was your mantra at that point. That's all you had left. That's hilarious. It's a self-infliction, there's enmity, there's fiction, and your words are clear as day, ignorance creating these addictions in my head. So pretty much every Bible scholar knows this or should know this. I didn't uh, encounter this until uh, reading N.T. Wright's uh, big work, um, the big four-part series. It's like 4,000 pages. Um, and I think it was in his first book, uh, New Testament and the People of God. Not his first book, but the first part in that series. Uh, could be wrong. That might not even be... No right. one, Tim, uh, no one's going to know. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to be able to go like, no, 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 that was actually in, you know, who had 4,000 pages, Tim? That's insane. Hey, email in. Don't this go read it and then email it. Email in if you read, let, if you read <laughs> Tally all up the four email list of and, N.T. Okay. Wright's, that series Tim's talking about that's three, 4,000 pages, whatever. The New Testament, the people of God is in there and there's there's three other ones. If you read that whole thing, Email in and I'll shout you out on, on social or something or on the show somewhere. Uh, okay. Anyway, uh, I think it was in the New Testament and people of God. Get to, this is a, a tangent off a tangent off a tangent. Um, it, it's a riff off a common uh, phrase in, amongst the rabbis and the rabbinical texts that 
wherever two or more gather around Torah, God is with them. And, and what was that? That was a way of saying the original idea was God is in a temple. And so Israel has to have a temple to have God with them. And the whole heart of the entire system and the nation and the faith was based on a temple, right? That's where God lives. The people are going to live around him. Well, then for hundreds of years, Israel has no temple. God has departed. If you believe that God lived in that building in the first place, uh, you no longer have a house for God. And there is absolutely for generations an existential crisis of what it means then to be Israel, what it means to be, as we now say, Jewish. And what they did is they doubled down on rules and said, wherever we have these guidelines, these instructions for living, which, as we know, included many additions to fill out the 600-plus laws in the Pentateuch. Whenever we sit down with these rules encoded in these texts, that's when we are with God. But then Jesus quotes them and replaces Torah with himself, saying, whenever we are with him, with Jesus, that's when we are with God. Hmm. But then Jesus famously leaves, and so what it means to be with Jesus is to be with the Spirit of Jesus. But Jesus was reading the same Hebrew Bible that those rabbis were. So in my view, and I have my mind changed on this, but in my view, the rabbis were reading the Hebrew Bible in a way that was looking up close at the individual tiles, while Jesus was reading from a zoomed-out macro perspective. It was not trying to agree with every individual tile, but to see the overarching message. And that's the only way that Jesus was able to read the Hebrew Bible and conclude that it wasn't all just about obeying the rules of Torah— to the point where Paul actually says that the Torah is obsolete. These laws serve their function, but now we're moving beyond them. And now we're in this realm of the Spirit. So now look at the book of Acts. I remember totally over-spiritualizing this when we were in our early missionary days in San Francisco, but it's the line, it seemed good to the Spirit and to us to go here and do such and such. I'll give you, I'll, I'll tell you when you use that one. Uh, that's the one you use when you did something and it didn't actually work out. <laughs> Blame it on the spirit. Then you do that one and you're like, it wasn't me. It was the spirit. And so like, I mean, look, it seemed good to us in the spirit, or whatever. but like, obviously no one came, no one got saved. No one, you know, was there. It didn't work. Something bad happened. You use that one. That's when you use that. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to hit a, f- a few birds with one stone here. Um, cause, cause one thing I want to, that was very non-violent of you. It, the, the saying is kill. Yeah. Kill two birds just of the stone. Like, uh, you just want to hit them. <laughs> just, just like, yeah, just nick them a little bit. Two uh, birds. So, so one point I'm trying to make is that uh, the compiler of the Hebrew Bible disagrees with the text in the Hebrew Bible. Not he doesn't disagree with them always, uh, and and I'm not saying that what that means is therefore there's no cohesion. There's no consensus message in the Hebrew Bible. That's where a lot of liberal academic scholars have gone is, you know, even part of the documentary hypothesis, which we've briefly touched on maybe a year ago, is this view that's been very common for a while now that there are essentially four main sources of documents. And so you can buy Bibles where literally they have color coded where the scholars think each source came from. And Essentially, one of the underlying assumptions in many of the scholars doing work in this sort of documentary hypothesis pool is that uh, these are all just disagreeing voices and there's no way to bring them together, right? Um, 
And then the the conservative evangelical view is like that. It, it, there's no space for even thinking about that because God wrote all of this, God's with His own brain and words, right? God did this Himself. And what I'm sort of advocating for is a view in which there are disparate pieces, but they are arranged in a in an incredibly creative, brilliant, ingenious way with with messaging there to make points, multiple of them, not just one. Um, And so, yes, there are disparate pieces. Yes, there are texts that are out of order and repeating lines and disagree with one another. And all of... That's the point. Yeah, all of those things are good to see. A point I've made before, the Bible isn't trying to hide any of those, right? Conservatives hide them. (laughs) But the author of the Bible wasn't... The redactor wasn't trying to hide them. Often they're in the beginning or last lines of the book where they're the easiest to notice. Um, or you'll read through, for instance, like read through the Exodus story. There are scenes that happen out of order. Uh, same thing there, the story of, of David and Saul. Uh, literally there are two introductions to David in a a couple chapters away from one another, and they can't both make sense together. Right? So if you're reading this thing as either there's, there's one single author with no uh, tensions or whatever, you can't make sense of those passages. Uh, but then if you go the other direction, then the thing becomes sort of meaningless, right? If we're just reading this collection of arguing old dudes who wrote different texts with different ideas versus someone actually came along, compiled these things, made, made a picture out of them. So where that comes to our ethics, both the ethics of like, what do we do with the patriarchy that is leaping off the page in in the Old Testament, right? One is to say, well, let's treat that the way we would uh, a couple tiles with Hitler's face on them in this overarching mosaic. However we ought to treat that, we ought to treat these texts. Just not to whitewash them, not to pretend they aren't there, not to uh, then say, well, we have to treat women the same way, (laughs) right? Not to say we can't be better than that, um, but to try to see the the overarching message and not get... um, uh, not get tied down, anchored down by some of the ethics that are there. But not say that they put those in there so that we would see that we're not supposed to live that way. Because I think that's a little too generous to even the redactor, right? Correct. Which I think is yeah. sort of uh, Sarah's question. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that we talked about that before. I think that's what I take away from from Greg Boyd and those in a similar camp is it's holding, in in my view, as I understand it, holding a really high view of God's role in inspiration such that if we're seeing ugly stuff here, it, it must be because God intentionally wanted it there. And then we can rationalize, well, why would God have wanted to do that? Well, if it's not because God actually thinks men should rape women and get away with it as long as the women don't scream, then it must be because God wants to actually show us the sinfulness of humanity so that we could learn from that as well as learning from the good stuff, right? And yeah, I'm just not buying that. I'm That, again, to me is sort of colluding with this view of humanity that in my, my recent studies is what I've sort of the light bulb that keeps going off is, wow, the this compiler has a view of, of his readers that is astoundingly high compared to what all of my experience in conservative Christianity has led me to believe, right? This this compiler believes that I can 
seek and find wisdom here in this life. This compiler believes that by my reading this book, I can actually grow in wisdom. This compiler believes that that's the point of my being here, of my having these texts, of my being a part of this faith community. And then the one I keep, you know, hammering home is like this strange little line that I keep finding even even prominent Bible teachers and scholars can't make any sense out of is this line in the letter to the Corinthians where Paul says, don't you know you're supposed to judge angels? Like you're supposed to rule over divine beings. Like you can't figure out how to be wise enough to, to deal with a lawsuit amongst yourself, right? A disagreement amongst yourselves. Paul's view of people like was so high that he he's literally saying, you're going to rule the entire cosmos and other in, in the worldview, other divine beings, divine agents, you're going to rule them. So don't you think that, that you should have enough wisdom or should be trying to, to acquire the wisdom necessary to at least rule well amongst yourselves in this world? So let that cat be a, a, a limitation to however you want to read your Romans 8 passages, right? <laughs> of what Romans 5, Romans 8, of what you think Paul is saying about how awful we are all are as people is he literally expects this church of peasants in Corinth uh, to, to have the kind of wisdom to, to govern the world with. That was his, his view. So that's the other reason why I say, um, why, why I point this out, it, the whole thing is on this trajectory towards, towards wisdom to rule the world. So there really is no place in that view for an anthropology that says we can't do any of that. We just have to let a book rule us. I have a question about that because that seems to largely be, and as we say, we've talked about this before on the show, what Dallas Willard is his, his main point in a lot of the stuff, especially like divine conspiracy is that we should become the type of people. Our goal as a, as a Christian is to become the type of person that can make good moral ethical decisions, right? Okay, so Dallas Willard is pretty widely accepted in evangelical world and things like that. So here's my question. How come that's largely what Dallas is saying and he's widely accepted by lots of evangelicals, I would say, and yet they often miss this this piece uh, or at least the the significance of this piece of becoming the type of people that can rule and reign and make good ethical, moral decisions, all these type of things. Is it just the piece of like, so how does that happen is my first question. And is it just the piece of how we're doing that? Because maybe they would say, yes, do that. Use the Bible, take this Bible, try to figure out exactly what it's saying. Maybe we're going in a circle here now and then rule and reign with that. Maybe that's the breakdown. And we're saying, and a lot of progressive, uh, more liberal Christians and um, religious people would say, don't stop there. The Bible is, the biblical writers, the redactor, whoever, is saying, keep going, press press on beyond that, and continue to, to grow um, into the type of person that can make those good moral, ethical decisions, can rule, can reign, all that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't know. I, uh, gosh, just... You know, my reaction is I don't think even I don't think Dallas Willard is is popular or uh, commonly accepted within evangelicalism. Um, I certainly don't think Dallas Willard has been heeded 
well or or listened to uh, within evangelicalism. His, I mean, his entire life's work was basically evangelicalism as a as a failed project, right? And he was writing that from within uh, evangelical world. But if that has been accepted, the only thing I've seen personally that's been accepted is like, you're right, we're not being Christian enough. We're not being disciples enough. We need to be more Christian, right? So there, we that was the world we swam in. It was that was Francis Chan's message, that basically, uh, you know, there's this crisis of discipleship. You have a lot of lukewarm Christians who sit in pews, uh, but they don't follow, uh, they don't really follow the commands of of Jesus. They're not doing uh, the Jesusy thing enough. Um, but then you can you can take that and then you just double down what we saw. You double down on the cons- the conservative Christianity as the means to accomplishing that thing, right? So it's more Bible. It's we literally sat in a room, Nate, you and I, for four months and uh, browsed through Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, which I've said this before. I'll say it again. It's one of the worst Christian books I've ever encountered. Um, and then we we browsed through that, talked about it for f- like one day a week for four months, and then we said we were ready to be pastors. Yep. You know, <laughs> so so that was perceived as the solution was okay. We get it, we have to get all the theology down. We have to get and the systematic theology, get all of our doctrines right. Get get our double predestination uh, buttoned up, and then go do more right. So that was that was the two edged sword. It's like you got to do your systematic theology, and it's got to be Calvinism. It's got to be reformed, and then you got to go be more active. Uh, so you and I, the other side of that was we saw we basically were sort of killing ourselves in this soft martyrdom uh, where you let your marriage fall apart, you let your your physical, spiritual, emotional health fall apart, and then you do all of that to the glory of God, right? Um, and you have a c- colonialist mindset that's embedded with racism and sexism and uh, all of that along the way. But if you do enough of that, then you'll be like truly following Jesus, right? So if, in my view, this is very cynical, if any part of Dallas's message has been widely accepted, it's just that we need to do more Christianity uh, to really be Christian. Yeah, that's probably fair. That's probably fair. Also, your little take there on uh, <laughs> our time in uh, in ministry was uh, actually really good for me to hear because I've struggled sometimes to summarize and kind of condense it down into what was uh, what was so troubling about all of that? And I think that was actually a really good little hot take right there. This is a you know the eighteenth iteration of a tangent, but um, outside magazine, uh, which probably few of our listeners uh, subscribe to. Um, and I don't even know the name of the journalist, but uh, they just recently published a really good I actually even haven't finished it, but it's a really good article on John Chow, uh, the young. A Chinese-American missionary who went to the Andaman Islands, to North Sentinel Island, and was killed. Was it earlier this year? End of last year, earlier this year? Oh, I just heard a podcast kind of touching on that. I can't remember what it was. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a good article because this guy, I think it's a guy who wrote it, he sort of got an inside scoop on, from the missionary, the deceased missionary's friends. They, they gave him access to his journals and... Uh, Basically, he was one of the only reporters who they allowed to sort of have the inside access to do a story because he had wanted to go to North Sentinel and spent years of his life thinking that he was going to get on the island and go be with uh, the people. And so he kind of, he identified with John Chow at this deep level. Um, 
So this article sort of has some of of this kid's uh, journals. I didn't realize he's from Vancouver, Washington, just outside of Portland. Hmm. Uh, grew up idolizing Jim Elliott, just like you did. Oh dear. Missionary from Portland um, who went off to, was it Ecuador? Yep. Uh, and got killed by a tribe that didn't want to be invaded by more white people. And the one element that I think this this journalist really understood and captured well is something we've we've touched on, but I just saw it so heartbreakingly uh, clearly uh, in this story was the the role that certainty plays uh, in religious conviction in order to shut out all doubt by turning anything bad that happens into a sign that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? Yep. Rather than the way we normally operate in the world was when something bad happens or things start to go wrong, you go through the normal process of going, is this a sign I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing, yeah. right? My leg, my leg is bleeding. Maybe I should stop doing this, right? This hurts me. I feel pain. Maybe I'm doing something my body doesn't like me to be doing. Um, it it touched on the the religious sensibility of you systematically shut down doubt, especially when it's like, God wants me to go to this island. You know, God wants me to be a missionary to Africa. Uh, God wants me to move to this town. God wants me to be a pastor. Whatever it is, you, you have the sense of calling. Um, even just, you know, God wants me to be a Christian and fight the culture wars and vote for Trump, you know. It's like whatever you feel absolutely certain about is from God. Just the way religion works, and again, this is not just Christianity, is what it means to be steadfast in your faith. And there are many out there who that's their main message, right, is to keep people being steadfast, to keep people (laughs) not doubting. What that does is it shuts down all of your normal human intuitions uh, to allow your experiences and those around you to actually challenge you. And it makes, sets you on this one, one tracked path. And one point this article made, which I think I've thought this before, but I had never really connected the dots is just the way that God and Satan language and theology is perfectly suited to accomplish that. Right. Because if anything good happens, it's because God's wanting you to do what you're doing, and this is a sign that you're doing the right thing. And if anything bad happens, it's because Satan is coming up against you, which means you're really doing the thing you're supposed to be doing, right? Yep. So anything that happens can affirm your idea, and nothing can can knock you off of that. <laughs> of oh, that dude, even to the point of, and we said this all the time um, in our ministry days, but like even to the point of we didn't see any quote unquote converts, right? Like very, very few converts. And that is a sign that like you're really speaking the truth right? because they don't want, you know, it says right there, you know, they're not going to, they're going to go for whatever just feels good to them. Whatever their itching ears want to hear, they're not going to respond to the truth. They're going to want to turn away from it. And so that obviously it's the truth now. So even when it gets to the final step of like the missionary journey, you know, if you go to that jungle and preach for 20 years, let's say you don't get killed, you go preach for 20, 30 years and ultimately everyone rejects you. Even to that ultimate point, that's just a sign that you are, you must have really been preaching the truth then. Yeah, totally. You must have really been doing the right thing because no one wanted it.
I had, I had this moment, I didn't think I'd talk about this, but I don't know, it's it connected somehow. It's, diff, it's different than the first half of this conversation we're having, but uh, some friends of ours moving to go uh, to a different town to be a part of this uh, big mega church that I think is super toxic. Um, that doesn't even have anything to do with it. They're, they're moving away because they want to go do something that they feel like God is sort of like leading them to do. And so uh, the last night they were there, some of our other friends wanted to pray for them uh, before they went. And um, and one of my buddies, and I, and I love him, good dude, he just prayed this thing that I was like, you know, every time there's a, a group prayer, and I'm not around him all that much, but I'm like, don't be the cynical guy, don't be the cynical guy, don't be the guy who's like, policing everybody's prayer right like don't don't do that thing like no one wants you to be that guy like let people be people but he his prayer was god would you very quickly give them lots of signs that this is exactly what they're supposed to be doing and i was like wait where is the prayer that's like god let them know if this is not at all what they're supposed to be doing (laughs) you know like Hmm. it it was this just this subtle way of saying, oh, we are already assuming that we know exactly what we're supposed to be doing and we're in the right. And we just want to get rid of any doubt that we're not in the right. Like that was literally the prayer. Get rid of any doubt that you're not doing the right thing. Rather than if you're doing the exact wrong thing that you should be doing for yourself, for the world, for Jesus, whatever, like break all the light bulbs in the house at one time so they all so that they like know that this is not the right thing, right? And it was that yeah. sense of like, oh yeah, you're right. If you have the right mindset, you guys could go off. And you, in my view, you'll never know whether it's what God wanted you to do. You'll never even know if it was good, loving behavior because you will interpret all of your life in order to fit the narrative you already already have. So, okay, here here's where this, this connects to, <laughs> to our conversation. I actually think this is an inevitable, the thing I'm complaining about is one part, a a problem with a view of conservative religiosity that, that we largely poke at, right? It's also a problem with what Jesus and the New Testament authors say is, is the way forward that is not following the rules of Torah. It is that each individual and and those individuals collectively as a, a family, a community, are to somehow live this mystical life with the spirit of a person and a God that we do not see or hear, <laughs> and, and that that will help us find wisdom and make decisions in the world. It is so utterly subjective, right? It's so, you know, people can talk about their life with God or hearing God or what it means to hear from the spirit or, you know, abide in the spirit. They can talk in ways that make it sound like that's tangible and normal and practical and easy to understand. It's not, at least 99% of us out there don't think that it is right. It's, it's just, it's like the thing that I wish more churches would say, even if they believed in all the versions of Christianity that I don't believe in is just, yeah, I know I don't hear God either. 
Right. Like my morning quiet times talking to God is me talking and nobody talking back. Like, and it doesn't mean I've had moments where I felt like I heard from God, right? I don't know if I did or not. I don't know how to make sense of it, whatever. But that's not the majority. That's yeah. That's not the majority of experience. It's a few standout moments, but the idea present, my case is that it was contained within the Hebrew Bible, but it's especially where the new Testament takes us is that we're not supposed to use a text as our anchor we're not supposed to use a set of rules as our anchor. We're supposed to move forward and have God's spirit interpersonally be in us and with us to to help us go heal the world, right? But our experience is nothing like the book of Acts. <laughs> it's not, hey, we're sitting around and like, it, it seems good to us in the spirit. Like how, what does that even mean? Like, what did you, like, did you have a, a thermostat? And like when the thermostat, there's like a, feels good zone, like a feels bad zone. And it like got up to the red. Like, what does that actually mean? For most of us, we're going, I don't know. I know there are a lot of people on the more charismatic spectrum and you have more spiritual experiences or whatever. Um, but it, it's, it's confusing. It's unclear. It is not black and white. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of tablets with rules written on them right? <laughs> it's the op- whatever the opposite of having clear set out guidelines for everything you're supposed to do in life, whatever the Christian life in the spirit is, is the opposite of that. And so some of what I'm complaining about my friends, sort of what I would call arrogance of how well they know what God wants for them, um, is just part of what we're susceptible to. If what we're saying is actually life is Life is lived, the Christian life is lived as we find wisdom in partnership with the Spirit, right? The Spirit, literally, the, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Wisdom in the New Testament. Uh, that that's, that's how we find wisdom, not, not via this book. Um, so I like to think that, like, the role of community is to, like, you know, slap some sense into each other and help correct that and all that. But in my experience, there's more groupthink and... Um, uh, arrogance, spiritual arrogance being a big part of it. Of like, we have the right theology, we have the answers, we have the key to happiness, we know what we have, and therefore we know what we're supposed to be doing. Maybe we don't know like what career we should go into or, you know, who we should marry, that sort of thing, but like we have the answers and, uh, and then we just need, you know, we need affirmation and we need to get rid of any doubt. Uh, Anyway, that's a long ramble on a long tangent, but yeah, I mean, this sort of been you know kind of just had a few tangents in this episode, but that's kind of fun, kind of getting us back in the groove here a bit. And um, just one thought I wanted to get into is that I feel like you know the second the Bible, and I think this has already happened many many times, but the second the Bible can't talk to something, can't talk about something. It, it kind of proves that we are, it's, it proves your point. It proves that we are supposed to be the ones that uh, are to, you know, as Proverbs says, get wisdom. Um, we're supposed to be the ones that are to be these good moral agents into the world um, that are, you know, trying to read and respond to the circumstances and the situations that we are finding ourselves in, in our day and our age and our society. Um, you know, I just think about that. Like, I, I'm, I'm really into space and uh, just like trying to blow my. I love, I love blowing my mind uh, regarding space and everything that's out there and potentially life on 
um, well, there's pretty much definitely life somewhere else out in the universe. But you know, the second it can't, the second the Bible can't speak to anything that we're experiencing, it proves this. It proves that, okay, well, now we have to, even if you believe like we need to dig into the Bible and try to figure out as best we can what we're supposed to do, you're still saying that we need to look at the world. We need to look at what's actually happening. We need to use our brains and our hearts and uh, and other people and data and science to actually determine what's best, what is the best way forward. So, okay, Tim. So coming back to my little summary um, question of, is the Bible really sufficient and clear for guiding our ethical decisions and morality? <laughs> I really want to constrain you to a yes or no. Uh, let's start there. Yes or no, Tim. Is the Bible really sufficient for that? No. All right, we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> but the, yeah, we will have to see you next time. The thing is, you know, there. If if you're conservative and you're listening to that, you're like, oh, well, that's just because you don't, you know, you don't believe in the authority of the Bible or whatever. And of course, you're just going to say that, so you can like make up your own your own views on stuff. But like, we'll, we'll talk really like. The, the Bible would disagree, in my view, with the idea that the Bible is sufficient for ethics. Actually, the, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, which just comes from the Reformation, the last 500 years, um, traditionally hasn't even said that the Bible is sufficient for ethics. Uh, it talks about most people interpret this as the Bible sufficient for salvation, right? Sufficient to know Jesus, sufficient for the things you need to know, to know God, that sort of stuff, um, which I have a lot of qualms with a lot of that language as well. Um, but the idea uh, that the Bible, that the Bible is even where we get our ethics, I think it is up for debate. Uh, and again, not just like, should we treat it that way ourselves, but those who made this set of texts, did they think that that's what this was to be for, right? Right. Um, so let alone, is it sufficient for all of that? Like, is it even a good starting place for that? You're and, kind of coming at it from like a, like a tool standpoint, right? Like, it feels like if you have this supposedly most important thing in the world, then you would just use it for everything. But what if it didn't even intend to be or want to be used for that, you know? Totally. So again, we'll get into more detail next time, but you know, you have that one line in second Timothy where Paul says, Hey, don't forget, uh, scripture is useful for some stuff. Right. And then he gives a little list of stuff. Uh, and, and then at the end of the list, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And, I remember thinking like, man, that feels like, it feels like saying, <laughs> you know, it's sufficient for everything we need to do, to do the Christian job, right? Um, so there's just one thing I recently found, which is that uh, the line, basically the exact same phrase uh, of being equipped for every good work uh, is repeated in Colossians. And it's not the Bible that will do that equipping, it's the Spirit of God, and the Bible's not mentioned anywhere. And, and then you just go to other letters like uh, the letters to the Corinthians, and you realize that little thing where Paul talks about Scripture and, and how Timothy should be using Scripture for something 
is it literally occurs one time, right? In all of the letters we have uh, <laughs> attributed to Paul. And every letter we have, Paul talks about the role of the Spirit in enabling people to do things, helping people to do things, empowering people to do things, giving people wisdom, know-how, all of that. So just in one letter, <laughs> first letter to the Corinthians, the Spirit's mentioned 44 times, right? In all of Paul's letters, he mentions Scripture as being useful for something that one time. So however we make sense of that thing, we should just recognize to me, and the end this the end of this conversation is recognize that we are all coming from a tradition that has used that verse in in Second Timothy as a as a justification for a treatment of the Bible that if we just read the Bible, we would never come to that conclusion. And we can expand basically how I think all of that comes from the Reformation and this war for power to take power away from Rome and the Pope and put it somewhere else. And so, well, they put it on the Bible and the Bible just isn't made for that. Right. So, uh, just the, the astounding, like you can, you can only go so far as saying like, well, this word shows up here one time and it shows this word shows up here like 200 times or something. But literally, if you just read through Paul's letters, you realize he's hinging this entire thing on the spirit the Spirit of God being able to do the things in people that we want to happen in people. And only one time does he use the Bible as the tool to accomplish something. I feel like we need to talk about the Spirit next. I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't make me. Okay, this is the end of this episode. Tim, we are going to keep the mics going and record an utterly heretical episode, which, uh, hey... That if you thought this was Utterly Heretical, then buckle up. Um, that we, that's what we do. We have a second show called Utterly Heretical that is just for Patreon supporters. If you give 10 bucks a month or more, you can listen to that show over at patreon.com slash almostheretical. And we will see you there. Thanks for tuning in and being with us. We love having you on this journey with us. And um, yeah, we're, we're all just kind of recovering and uh, reimagining things again and we love hearing from you if you want to email us you can email us contact at almostheretical.com and uh yeah we'll be back peace y'all